Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Slate Audiobook Club's discussion of Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant? by Roz Chast. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm the editor of the Slate Book Review, and I'm here in Slate's DC recording studio. Joining me here is Slate writer and double X founder, Hannah Rosen. Hello, Hannah. Hi, Dan. And joining us from Connecticut is Slate senior editor, Emily Bazelon. Hey. Hey, Dan. So, as is always the case with the audiobook club, we'll be spoiling the events of the book. So if that is something that matters to you, you should not listen until after you've read the book. Although in this case, the spoiler is that all things must pass and all humans must die. So I don't know if that's like a big surprise to anyone listening. So let's talk about the book. Roz Chast grew up in a small apartment in Brooklyn. And then 40 years later, her parents, still in their 90s, still lived in that exact same apartment, more and more crowded as it was getting with stuff. Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant is the cartoon memoir of Roz Chast's parents' final years in the apartment, their move to an assisted living facility, and their decline and deaths at ages 95 and 97. Today, in our discussion, we'll talk about how Chast portrays her parents, about whether this memoir can serve as a guidebook of sorts for grown children of seniors facing similar struggles, and how comics help Chast tell the story in a way that simple words could not. But first... Let's delve into these parents, Elizabeth and George. Hannah, how would you describe this loving Brooklyn couple? Loving? (laughs) (laughs) You kind of set me up there. I don't know if I would use loving as a word that I would associate with them. They never leave each other's sides. They are codependent. And then they say to each other, yeah, that's great. We're codependent. I mean, the precision with which she captures them is just fabulous. I would describe them like this. The phrase I most associate with her mother, who is an elementary school principal, is you're going to get a blast from chast. She's always drawn as much larger than the father and often with angry face. She's a control freak and she is by far the dominant person in the family. The father is just rife with anxieties. He 
he's not handy. He never learned to ride a bike or drive a car. His relationship with food is hilarious and deeply <laughs> problematic. Like he won't eat uncooked apples, for example. So, I mean, it's like beyond your usual discomfort around food. So he's really anxious and they have a relationship where she bosses him around and he happily gets bossed around and Roz Chast is the third wheel in the relationship basically for her whole life. Emily, you know, when you were seeing the sort of the whole first quarter of this book, which really sets up these characters and their relationship, the parents and then their relationship with Roz, did you find yourself relating to one of those parents or to Roz or did you find sort of their whole ecosystem so alien that you couldn't even find a way into it? I definitely related to Roz. I feel like the book's strength is her narration and the way in which Hannah's right. We see these parents come to life completely through her eyes. And my parents are not anywhere near as old and decrepit as these parents by any stretch. But if you're anticipating your parents' decline and you're at an age where that is realistic, it feels very real, I think. The way you're seeing them through her eyes and the way she's an only child and is both trying to be a loving daughter and also completely tearing her hair out over how to take care of them. And then feeling guilt about how she is tearing her hair out because she is not a loving enough daughter and then so on into infinity. I mean, it's also this book, can we say, it's such a pleasurable object to hold. The pages are vivid with color. It has like better paper stock, better binding than most books, because it is a book of art as well as words. And there's a way in which she very skillfully goes back and forth between the present, which moves forward chronologically of her parents aging and eventual death, and then her own past as a child. There's sort of flickers at that where you get a sense of how difficult it was to grow up in this household and how that is affecting how she's dealing with them now. Right. There's a great section, actually maybe two-thirds of the way through, where Roz talks about her relationship with her mom. And then she talks specifically about how difficult of a child she realized, she thinks she must have been and how that, in a way, colored the relationship with that family. But I'm actually going to read a little section. Before you read it, can I just set it up a little bit? Because I thought that was structurally so interesting how she did that. She very slowly unfolds. So at first, her parents are this unit together. And you get hints of her relationship with her father, which was much more gentle and close than her relationship with her mother. And then he dies. And then she's kind of smacked in the face. I mean, I just thought as an emotional shift, it was incredibly interesting. She's kind of smacked in the face with her relationship with her mother, which she has declined to really explore during this entire book. And so in the final third of the book, it gets kind of uncomfortable and really rich there because her relationship with her mother is so is so difficult. It's so fraught. It's, it's very so fraught. fraught. Yeah. And it's clear that part of the message of the book and part of the story it's telling is not just that the book is withholding details about that relationship, but that Roz was determinedly not thinking about that relationship as much as possible for almost her entire life. That sort of the difficulty and neediness and nudginess of her dad allowed both of them to not think about the way that Roz and Elizabeth dealt with each other or didn't deal with each other for years and years. So there's a section on page 176 where it really seemed like her mom was deep in decline and was about to die. And then one day Roz walks in and she's sitting up eating a tuna fish sandwich. This is a section that's mostly text. There's hardly any pictures at all. Roz says, Maybe if my mother and I had been close, I would have been thrilled to see her out of bed chomping away. But we weren't. When I was growing up, one of her favorite argument enders was, I'm not your friend. I'm your mother. If you hear that enough times, it becomes hard to switch gears just because some years have gone by. My mother was no longer my enemy when I grew up. That didn't make her my friend. She was, as she insisted, my mother, plain and simple. 
I was aware that she loved me, but something was off. I knew this before I could speak. My mother told me that as a baby, I cried a lot, that I didn't like to sleep, that I didn't like to eat. I was born a month premature by cesarean section because of something related to the first baby. She was told by her obstetrician that if she carried me to term, her, quote, uterus would rupture. It was determined that there was nothing wrong with me as a child. Nevertheless, I was probably not a fun baby. I had one cold after another, and from the time I could speak, one anxiety after another. I was my father's daughter, not my mother's. The first baby she refers to is something that comes up right at the beginning of the book. It's a, a baby that her mother lost when she was pregnant, before she got pregnant with Roz, that she lost due to family lore because she had to climb up on a ladder to get a light bulb out of a closet because George was afraid of ladders. Now, it's probably not why she lost the baby, but that's a pretty rich way to start a book. The thing that I love about Roz Chest is this informal precision. Like she gets her language exactly right without seeming to try too hard. So the thing you just read is one perfect example of that. I was aware that she loved me, but something was off. Right. You know, that's a very casual sentence, but something was off. But it's such a perfect, succinct description of something a child feels that, you know, you, you know your mother loves you, but it's just not quite right. It's just not quite what it should be. And I think the light bulb story is a great story because, again, her mother kind of set the terms of the stories and the language and the family narrative in such a powerful way. She opens that final third section with her mother with that story about the spoon where she's saying this is a spoon and her mother saying her mother no it's it's a spoon it's a spoon and then ross says but i just said it was a spoon (laughs) and her mother says no you didn't you know so it's this way like the light bulb story is the first example of that like her mother tells a story you know about the light bulb and she was up on her chair and she fell and like the truth which is placenta privia just doesn't enter into the story and it's like a maddening relationship gets set up in which your mother determines what the truth is and you have no voice in there. And you can kind of see without Roz Chast voicing this because she never says that in some ways it's her mother who's responsible for her perspective, her sense of storytelling, her distance, her humor. And there's so much of her mother that goes into who Roz Chast became, but she kind of lets that come out in the book, which I think is very unusual in this kind of memoir. Or doesn't understand it at all. I mean, in interviews like maybe it's about, just not conscious. Right. In yeah. interviews about the book, people ask her, oh, well, is there any of your mother that you feel in you? And she's like, uh, lack of fashion sense. <laughs> right. And yet this gothic tale of horror about, you know, the baby who died before her is such a great example of the kind of tale that would haunt you as a kid and maybe wouldn't be very good for your normal psychological development, but is incredibly useful to you as a writer. Speaking of lack of fashion sense, another of my favorite ones is the sex talk that her mother has with her, which is on page 25, where she says, you know, you can determine the degree of a woman's sexuality from her shoes. And then her mother calls her own shoes beetle crushers. It's like (laughs) the way her mother talks is so good. I mean, there's just so many phrases I remember that her mother says, like, he fell down like a clubbed ox when her (laughs) father falls off the ladder. I mean, her language is just so good. You know, you can see her kind of drawing the world in her head, her mother, and just like, that's the world. Whatever you saw is false. What I just drew is correct. And it's a great example of what a good writer does, which is that a writer notices. I mean, Roz Chast has obviously been taking notes for years and years and years on this stuff, but also... 
there's a degree to which the interaction between her father and her mother is so ingrained in her psyche that even when she doesn't hear what they say, she understands how they dealt with each other. There's this great example on page 91 when her mother has been at the hospital for two weeks and she gets back to the apartment and Roz Chast is like, I got to just go back to Connecticut. I got to get out of here. And the next morning her father calls and it turns out her mother once again fell down because she was making breakfast for her dad after she'd just been in the hospital like near death for two weeks. And in an ordinary family, you'd worry that the dad had pressured her into making breakfast. But in fact, <laughs> of course, that's not what happened. But Roz Chas wasn't there to see what happened, but she can perfectly picture the conversation they had. And then she dramatizes it for us. It's called The Morning After, a play in six lines. In bedroom, Elizabeth, who has just been released after two weeks in the hospital. And Wait, can George... I be Elizabeth? Sure, can be yeah, George? I'll be George. Okay. And George, her husband of 67 <laughs> years, are waking up. I'll make your breakfast now. Don't get up. I can get my own breakfast. Don't argue with me, George. What are you trying to prove? You're making me angry. I'm fixing your breakfast and that's final. All right. <laughs> that was like a blast from Hana. <laughs> <laughs> I could not more identify with this. I mean, I'm not saying my parents are like this, but I'm also not saying my parents are not like this. So. <laughs> and I would say like Jamaica, Queens and, you know, Ocean Parkway are like extremely similar yeah. to each other demographically. And so, you know, I super relate to like the weirdo language you just can't relate to and the situations they see one way and you see the other way, like the bank books, which keep coming up. They're very valuable. The thieves will come after them. So do you guys feel like at any point Raza's portrayal of her parents just got flat out mean, like too mean? Raz is certainly not kind to herself in this book, right? She's very harsh on herself and her own lack of ability as a caretaker. But she's also pretty harsh on her parents' inability to be taken care of. And, like, for example, that scene when she goes shopping with her mom and she's, like, buying 10 million stockings. Like, there was a point where... Do you where remember I... what color they were, Dan? I don't. Lobster I don't... bisque. They were lobster <laughs> Those bisque. were the ones on sale. <laughs> And she was going to cut them up and make herself one pair of visible yes. stockings. So, like, that's a great portrayal of this character's, like, weird skin flintness. But at the same time, at some point I worried that this was, like, so mean that, I guess, from wherever Elizabeth and George are, nowhere, according to them, they would be, like, a little bit, like, brutalized by this. But am I being overly sensitive? I did not feel that way. And the reason is, I think the harsh light is all in the service of explaining how hard it is to take care of your aging parents. And that that's something people don't often vocalize because it's kind of unseemly and, yeah, a little brutal. But I would imagine that if you were going through something that is in any way like this, it would be such a relief to have someone put their parents' foibles front and center like this in a way that then liberates you to think about your own parents with some factual accuracy if meanness that then maybe brings you to some kind of point of compassion too because you're being honest i don't know maybe that's a little fanciful that you get to the honesty by being so upfront about it but i think there is something very freeing about the way in which she doesn't let her parents ghosts dictate how she approaches them well here's a question back to you before i answer that do you think there's love in this story like do you think she thinks her parents love each other I definitely yes, do. I mean, you I questioned do. Dan using the word loving in the beginning. I felt like she was portraying a marriage that she wouldn't necessarily want to be in and was very much of its time, but was full of love. What do you think, Anna? I don't think it's mean at all. I mean, I 
personally have so little patience for elegy, you know, for coming to the end of the life and then creating a beautiful portrait. I mean, this is, I often say that I hope at my funeral people will tell the truth about how they feel about me. Finally. <laughs> Finally, people will tell the truth. <laughs> We're laying stock of stories about you and your lobster bisque <laughs> My lobster bisque stockings. So I guess the question is, it does not rub me the wrong way at all. I think she loves her parents. I think this is just a perfect portrait of family life. I don't know whether her mother would have wanted this. I'm guessing not. You know, her mother is a control freak and likes to control what happens. Um, she likes to control the narrative. She likes to control the narrative. Right. So so I think that must be a source of tension, which Roz Chas didn't explore so much in this story, is how Roz gets to ultimately control the narrative because she's the writer in the family. And yet this mother loves the idea of being legendary. I mean, there's there would be something satisfying to her about being portrayed as so much larger than life. I mean, I have to say, I have written about my parents in this way, like in this way of their foibles. And my mother is never insulted by things that I think she should be insulted about. I remember once writing a story about how the various ethnic conflicts in our Queen's apartment building and how we had these Indian neighbors upstairs and she would leave a bottle of Lysol outside their door because she thought their curry was like stinking up the apartment building and i wrote this story and i i showed it to her before i published it thinking you know oh she's gonna be really nervous like it's gonna make her look racist and she was like hell yes like it's stinking up the apartment building what do people expect me to do you know so with these like super dominant personalities as my mother is <laughs> you kind of never know they own it in some ways it's like blast from chest you know yeah right. well my small foray into this went exactly the opposite way. I, years ago, I wrote a piece about learning to cook in college, and I was trying to make the point that I didn't learn to cook that much before I left home and that my mom didn't cook a lot of beans. I was writing about vegetarian cooking, so I said that she cooked things like roast chicken, and she was so angry. It seemed so passe and quotidian to her, and she reeled off all the more gourmet meals she had made <laughs> for years that I hadn't mentioned, and I was like, okay, forget it. <laughs> Do you guys feel like this book is in any way like a useful guidebook like to people our age whose parents may soon be facing such issues as this i think it presents itself in that way here and there and it probably does have some measure of practical advice but there's also the sense that Roz Chast, the person was so totally overwhelmed by all this stuff that a lot of her advice ends up being stuff like on page 86 when she complains about dealing with all the forms and her official advice is if you can pass this job on to someone else, I'd recommend it. <laughs> I mean, I, like Emily, found the emotional exploration of it genuinely liberating because I often think about the problem of my being a reluctant caretaker and what's mm -hmm. that going to mean when my parents get older. And the fact that she could embrace herself as a reluctant caretaker and her parents as people who didn't want to be taken care of. So, you know, you've got the worst possible setup for a smooth entry into this phase of life. And yet it kind of works, you know, and I like it doesn't work at all. <laughs> it totally works. What do you mean? She, she does what she's supposed to do. She like gets them to the place like they have preserved as much. And then they don't immediately die. It's just very. I, yeah, but I mean, she's like a but it ruins her life. And it's, she's a bundle of neuroses for like seven years. But isn't that it? I mean, how have you seen anybody there's whose no parents have died? Yeah, I think there's no alternative, Jesus Dan. Christ. Like, you're looking to smooth and whitewash this situation over. And I think the point is the situation sucks. Like, your parents want to live in their apartment. They've got all their stuff there. I mean, I've never seen anybody go through this smoothly unless they're lying. You know, either your parents, like, 
die straight out or they're rich and they have a lot of money and move to like a nice nursing home themselves when they're 65. But I think for the most part, this is how it goes down. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think she has her finger <laughs> on this. not totally not Dan's believing not me. happy about no, this. No, I believe you. Sorry, I'm just honey. not happy. Well, I think what she's revealing here is that we've made death feel kind of contingent and you can put it off. And if you throw enough money at it, you can really put it off. Or maybe you can't, but you feel like you're supposed to. It's very confusing. And I think that the fact that she is dealing for seven years with these people who are getting older and older and more infirm but aren't you know, they're not dead yet in the great Monty Python tradition. It's revealing of a problem that lots and lots of people are going through. I mean, this is going to be so useful to me when when my parents pass this transition, even understanding, like even the way she illuminates what the points of transition are, are going to be like a how-to for me. Like when your parents go from, this is on page 20, you know, I could see that they were slowly leaving the sphere of TV commercial old age, spry, totally independent, just like a normal adult, but with silver hair. And moving into that part of old age that was scarier, harder to talk about, and not a part of this culture. Drink glass of vinegar a day. Live forever. Cryogenically frozen head. Kale. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like there's a slippage. Like even that picture she has of how for a while it's like a slow, steady decline, which is where all of us live. You know, like your knees hurt, your hips hurt, like your parents can't quite do what they used to be. And then it's like, oh, shit, it's free fall. Like you're just falling off the edge of the cliff. Like you fall, you can't get up. You have to go to the hospital. And when you move into that phase, it's when things get really serious. I was very impressed with how specific the book was willing to get about money. Yes. I was really happy about that. Another really liberating aspect, right? Because it's another thing people don't want to talk about is what you do about... I mean, her parents' health insurance somehow doesn't translate out of the state of New York, which is insane, and leaves them with these crazy bills. And she's basically hoping they die before they use up their savings. They had the foresight to save a lot of money for it, and she basically goes through all of it, you know, $2,000, $3,000, $4,000, $5,000 at a time every month. And I also thought that was a really important part because, yes, that was the part... The stuff about bodily infirmity or even her mom shitting herself all over her house, like that stuff, I have read or seen stuff about that before. But I don't know that I've ever seen a memoir that was willing to just straight out say, my dying parents are driving me to the poorhouse. That's true. And she was slightly embarrassed about that. Now, it turned out that the nursing home has language for that. Like, they kind of know everybody's anxious about that. I mean, I was happy to know that, too, that for people who are in this business, that's a conversation you can have without a huge amount of shame. Like, their money's running out. I'm running out of money. I'm going to go bankrupt. Like, there are ways to kind of... Didn't the nursing home just say, oh, it always works out? I can't remember. They did. I was not so heartened. I thought they gave her some advice on that front. So do you think it's a question of money? Like if her parents hadn't scrimped and saved, like for people with a lot of money, this process goes smoothly. Yes. Uh, if you, this is no. sort of like childcare at the other end of life. Like if you don't have any money, then you end up like that depressing nursing home that she visited the first time. Emily and I disagree, apparently. Emily, tell me why now. <laughs> well, I don't think this necessarily goes smoothly if you have more money. I think you can spend a lot more money. My sense, and I could be wrong about this, but there's this moment where Medicare starts to kick in or Medicaid where you've depleted your own savings and your children's savings and finances don't necessarily get implicated because that's when the state will start picking up the bill. But it's kind of tricky. It's like, you know, you have to find the moment where that happens in the right way. But also Um, the state will probably not pay the amount of money that you would 
like to pay for the kind yes. of place you would like to put your parents in their declining years. And so the yes. balance is up to you. And it's super expensive. I mean, she's at the end of her mother's life spending an enormous amount of money on a full-time caretaker for her mother. And, of course, it's not lost on Chas that she's doing this because she doesn't want to be providing this care herself. On the other hand, that is such an enormous thing to ask of an adult who has her own family that she's going to turn over her life to her parents. I mean, it, you know, people do it. And it can be, I think, a completely honorable choice. But the way the choice gets framed, if you decide not to do that, then you're both hemorrhaging cash and feeling really guilty. One thing I thought was very unusual about this book in the genre of books about dying parents or parents who have recently died is how little she incorporated any part of the rest of her life. Always yeah. when yes. she's sitting at home and watching TV, like in those moments when she's like, who in their right mind calls after midnight? And then she realizes this is an emergency call. She's sitting by herself on the couch. And I think she mentions one of her children once. Briefly. Briefly. But she has two kids and a husband, and the husband is totally absent from the story in a way that felt really strange to me. Yeah, so I was curious about that choice. Like, why do you think she made the choice to make herself in this book entirely the daughter of her parents? I'm thinking of, you know, Philip Roth's patrimony. You're often what you're doing in books like this is you're actually writing about yourself as you're writing about your parent. And you're placing yourself in a kind of historical succession of men, women, sort of within your family. But this book really is about the thing itself. It's about her parents and about the process of dying and about Roz as their daughter and really about nothing else, which is unusual. And I wondered why she did that. And to some extent, it seemed to me that it was because I'm sure that her husband was helpful, and I'm sure that her children provided support. But at the end, she felt like she was in this alone because she was an only child, because she really was the product of her parents. I didn't mind that choice. I noticed it, too, and I often wondered, where is everyone else in her life? Why don't we ever see her in the New Yorker building drawing a cartoon or right. whatever? But I bought it because I think she spent almost this entire process feeling like the entire world was piled up on her desk and she was the only one who was going to be able to deal with it. No one else could deal with this shit. She could not ask anyone else to deal with this shit. And maybe there's a reverting that happens at that moment where, you know, for this intense and not all that brief period, you become, again, the child of your parents. Like yeah. that identity, which has been kind of dead. I mean, she hadn't visited them, visited Brooklyn in like 10 or 11 years. I think until 9-11, she didn't step foot in Brooklyn, she wrote. So she was kind of walling them off and living her own life in Manhattan with her, you know, her work, her husband, her family. And then suddenly, you know, the journey itself, like the process of, you know, I think she took a car and not the train, but she she takes the car over there and it's like suddenly there she is, like with her parents in her whole own house, looking at her room, which is everything's made of linoleum and, you know, like the smells, everything is getting right just as angry at her mom as she did when she was a teenager. Right. Yeah. Which is exactly what I do. Yeah, I think you guys have done a great job of justifying this narrative choice and it didn't distract me to the point of no return as I was reading. But I have to say when we got to her mother's 97th birthday and one of her children is there but her husband isn't nor is her second child, I started thinking, okay, there's something weird happening here. Like is her family totally dropping the ball and is she just leaving out her own upset over that either out of some sense of maintaining their privacy or because she just didn't want to deal with that additional subject? 
I think what she doesn't surface here is the difficulty of reconciling two very different kinds of lives, which I have some personal experience with. It's just like you can do that more or less graciously when it comes to your parents. Depending on how many times a day they're calling you. Depending. Yes. My mother and I talk every day. So, you know, I'm doing my part here. And I think it's quite difficult if you live a borough apart from them. I recently ran into someone, I won't say who it is, who I grew up with in Queens, even poorer than we were on really the wrong side of the tracks in Jamaica. And, you know, he said his parents don't really speak English. He's got this family now. They don't really have anything to do with each other. I mean, it's just hard sometimes to kind of make those two fit together. And sometimes you do it by not doing it. You just choose to ignore it. And it sounds like she didn't explicitly say that, but it sounds like that's kind of what she did. Like she left her parents because they had each other. It's not like she had to include them. They were this kind of self-contained unit. And then she and her family were another self-contained unit. Well, and for years, they wouldn't even leave their apartment. I mean, it wasn't like they were going to come to Connecticut for like family reunions or something. They, you know, they didn't even leave. I mean, it's, I think that that's true. There's certainly in my family, my wife's parents are extremely incorporated into our everyday family, in part because they live closer to us, but in part because that is just the kind of people that they are. And my dad is sort of like that, but my mom isn't really like that at all. And she lives in Wisconsin, and her aging is already getting much more difficult, and she is the one who probably is going to be the Chastian problem at some point. <laughs> the Chastian and problem. And so I find myself, you know, even as I sort of foresee that future, separating her emotionally a little bit more and more all the time from my family as it exists now, because I can already see the ways that it could just like pull everything to shit if I don't do that. Again, we are guessing here because Roz Chast doesn't say this and she's not explicit about this. The one hint you get is her feeling of utter panic in the period when her mother goes to the hospital and her father comes to live with them. Yeah. When she says like, oh my God, my this is it. Like she feels very Armageddon level panic herself at that moment. And he's kind of senile and is repeating himself endlessly and she's having to play that incredibly tiresome patient role of answering the same questions over and over again, which I think is just such a difficult part of early stage Alzheimer's. I find it so funny that I think she did a great job and Dan <laughs> she did like a terrible job. Well, it's, it's hard for me to separate her own feelings about how ill-suited she was to it. And in the end... The things she did for her parents were humane and kind, and her parents had about as good going out as you can hope for, considering the horrible things that happened to their bodies and souls and spirits and minds. But at the same time, I do think that this book is suffused with a greater than normal amount of guilt and self-loathing over one's own inability to face and cope with these things. And she never actually gets better at it. Her notebook just gets crazier and more full of receipts and shit. And she keeps feeling more and more overwhelmed. And at the end, her mom dies and she doesn't even feel like she is able to make an emotional connection to her because she never could and she never would. And that, to me, to me, that feels like not a successful end of life. And I, I admire the book for being honest about that. But I also feel bad about it because it feels like... Not just the usual unhappy ending, but a more unhappy ending than usual. So a better or a more hopeful trajectory 
Well, A would be something like, you know, in parenting, you have a child, you're depressed, you feel like you're completely incompetent at it, and you get more competent over time. So if she had gained some level of competent, or if she had had some happy reconciliation. Or so if she had just never been the child of these parents in the first place, they had been totally different <laughs> parents who were less crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to me, the success is in facing the thing as it is and making some narrative sense of it right. and, you know, being realistic about what your own limitations are. And to me, that's great. That's what you And also do. feeling like you came through. And I actually think the end of the book in which she ends on dreams of her parents and the one of her father is a quite lovely scene is an example of that. I have a good friend whose mother was in a nursing home nearby for years. And actually, it was first it was both her parents. Her father died first. Then it was her mother. Very reminiscent of this story. And when her mother died, I felt like my friend could feel like she really had done the best she could. Now, she had support from sisters of hers. She wasn't all by herself, and her husband was helpful too. But there was a sense of, like, this was my job as a daughter. There were parts of it that were really hard and super unpleasant, but I did it. And that's, like, such an important life obligation to fulfill. It's its own satisfaction. I yeah, agree I with you to some extent. But I will also note that while the dream about her dad is really nice, the dream about her mother is suffused with anxiety Four years later, the dream of her mom is, I'm about to go somewhere with my friends or my husband or my kids, but suddenly she begins to collapse and I have to take care of her. Like, that is not necessarily a person who's 100% satisfied with the way she handled that situation. Well, but also it's a reflection of her mother and how demanding and difficult her mother truly was. What are oh, you yeah. supposed to do about that? If I had that mother, I'm sure I would do even worse than Roz Chast did because my mom is just like sort of a normal level of crazy and I already can't take her like at all. <laughs> So forget about Rozchest, the particularities of their relationship. The relief to me, even in that anxious dream at the end, is the relinquishing of a hope for reconciliation or something to change mm -hmm. or, you know, mm -hmm. the sort of great moment at the end of life. I think you just kind of decide, you know, this is my relationship with my mother. She lets me in to a certain degree. She shuts me out to a certain degree. She is who she is. I am who I am. And given who we both are in this world, we can, you know, sort of usher each other through this horrifically difficult period and you can be present and that counts as a success. I love when she makes fun of herself for little things that she could be righteous about, like, oh, look at me. I'm so proud. I ordered an ambulet. You know? right. I so like <laughs> sympathize with that feeling when I'm like, oh, look, I'm so busy, but yet I showed up and I did this one thing and I'm so awesome because I ordered the ambulet. And then you feel like everybody should sort of praise you for ordering the ambulet. I'm going to remember that when my time comes. Yeah, too. for real. I just refinanced my mom's mortgage and I'm going to use that as an excuse to not do things for my mom for like five years. Right. <laughs> Right. Dan, um, take yourself out for a drink for that one. Now, can we talk a little bit about the visual elements of the book? Like, yes. One thing I found amazing was the photographs. I don't know if she was being extremely selective, mm -hmm. but Roz Chas looks genuinely miserable in every single <laughs> photograph. Like, her body is literally, like, you know, pulling away from the touch of her parents. And she's, and got she's this... incredibly stiff, right? Like, right. in that photo on page 167. Oh, my God. Yeah. And there's yeah. one. One that Dan has had open for a while here in the studio, which is me at 11. Right. I mean, she looks 45 years old. Right. It's like page 123. Like, I cannot imagine that child is 11. Yeah, the one on page 167 <laughs> is great. And her parents are always behind her. It's like they're the backdrop. She's the foreground. 
yeah, and she looks awkward. Like, who's not natural around their parents? That's what's weird about it. Like, you wouldn't necessarily be happy, but it's like she's posing in a formal portrait with people she doesn't know, you know? So obviously the photographs are an indelible part of this, including the photographs of all the shit in her parents' house, but... Most oh my of god, I poured is... over those pictures. I just looked at them over and over again. Yeah, like the ouchless band-aids. Oh, I remember those being around. The I medicine those in like 30 years. But so what did you guys think in general about the way this works as cartoons in a way that might not have worked in text? I will say honestly that Roz Chess cartoons in The New Yorker I find annoying far more often than I find them funny or insightful. Yet I found her style, with only a few exceptions, really, really well suited to telling this specific story and i think it just has to do with the separation that a story like this requires between the characters and the narrator and the way the sort of chastity narrator voice which often irritates me in one panel really built to give me a real sense not only of these characters but of her in multiple panels over the course of an entire can you say more about that that's really interesting you mean because as a kind of one-off joke it's cloying or annoying or obvious yeah i mean partially it's because her one-off jokes i just often find like so paper thin as to have no effect on me whatsoever well she's going for the laugh line in the one-off panels right sometimes she's going for the bemused shrug but whatever she's going for i often feel like the subject is even too flimsy for a cartoon, I guess. But I don't know if it's just that there was richer subject matter here, but no, I feel like it's something about the chast narrator voice combined with image that, for me, made this book more than it could have been. The one example I could maybe give is there's the section where she's talking about her dad's crazy food issues. It starts on page 76 and page 77, and she tells this and into page 78. She tells it partially through text and then a big panel of her dad just looking miserable and saying, this has an unfamiliar taste. But then there's this great story she tells about, it's not even about her dad as an older person. It's when he is just a regular dad. When I was growing up, she says, all the serving utensils would always end up on his plate, which drove my mother bats. His plate would look like this by the end of the meal. And then there's just this amazing drawing of his (laughs) plate with every serving utensil from every goddamn bowl just ended up there the way that every dad does. And that, to me, like really symbolized a certain ability that these cartoons have to use image in a way that a just an all textbook would never be able to do. You could never make this point as crystal clear and make me feel instantly like I understand this guy and the entire story of how these serving utensils ended up on his plate and how annoying that would be day after day, <laughs> month after month, year after year. Like you could never do that just in prose. Well, I completely agree. You could make this a New Yorker cartoon, and I would be like, ah, whatever, I don't care about that. Right. But in the context of this, it totally worked as part of a picture of these people. I I also wonder if it affects you more here because the one-liners belong to somebody else. You know, it's it's a little bit like shit my dad says, like Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. phrases from her parents, like the cartoon that's on the opposite page of the one with the plates is when she takes her dad out to go shopping because his underwear is ancient, you know, and her dad says some genuinely really, really funny things. Like he's looking at a poster of like, you know, Calvin Klein, you know, Marky Mark style underwear poster and says you know it looks like these men have breasts which is all exclamation pointed and so and he won't buy a red jacket and he whispers to her communism so it's not oh sort of we elites sharing a one-liner about you know domestic ironies it's like specifically located in these 
specific people from a specific time. Yeah, that's true. And Ross Chess is really good at characterization. And that makes me just sort of sad, I guess, that I've never really seen this out of her before, that her cartoons don't deal with that that much at all in The New Yorker. And maybe it's just that maybe she's not a master of characterization in general. She's just a master of characterization of her parents, the people she's studied more than anyone else has any ever studied anyone in the history of like ever. <laughs> I think she's just doing two different things that her cartoon panels are about something else that's less ambitious and less to your taste, but that there are, I was actually amazed at what a uh, distance I thought there was between the book and her persona as I've come to know it and like it better than you in the New Yorker. What do you mean, Emily? What, what did the book illuminate for you that her cartoons haven't? About her. In my New Yorker sense of her, she is like merely a mass of neuroses. And her talent is for surfacing those neuroses in a way that feels both familiar and, you know, sometimes are trying to be funny. But that's it. I don't have any sense of her as like grappling with bigger issues or living in the real world. It feels very flat and kind of abstract to me. Whereas in this, like, she is clearly a daughter schlepping around doing all of these things and using her art to help propel her through this experience and make sense of it. I buy that. I do think that there is a real sense here of ambition for what comics can do that is by its nature not present in single panel gag cartoons for the new yorker and it's a pretty formally experimental comic book i mean you know as as comic memoirs go there are many of them in fact there have been ones that have dealt with this exact subject before but it's it's very ambitious in the way it combines long sections of text and small gag images full page sort of gag cartoons of the sort that almost could have been pulled right out of the New Yorker, like that big wheel of misery, the wheel, of doom. The wheel yes. of doom. Yeah. And then also photographs and other, like it's a very formally interesting and experimental book in a way that not all graphic novels, as people like to call them often are willing to be. It's not just panel after panel after panel in a grid telling a story in a linear fashion. It's, I mean, it's formally ambitious in a way that surprised me, I think, because I would did not really think of Ross Chess as that kind of cartoonist. I have to give my favorite example of what you're talking about, Dan, which is on page 93, where she annotates one of her mother's last poems. Oh, yeah. And the poem is itself just completely hilarious in that it's her mother both nudging her and giving <laughs> and making her feel guilty, but also like seeming to celebrate her by telling her that, you know, this is their dearest daughter, their greatest joy by far. Who doesn't and then they're all enough. these Yes, exactly. number seven These is the best. Are brief. Her visits, yes. though brief, lengthen their days, and her annotation is they weren't that brief. You know? <laughs> and there's this great picture of her, like as the clock goes tick tock. I mean, right. I just felt like this page just encapsulated both the formal creativity of the book, the use of art, the way the characters came alive, and then this very funny idea of footnoting your mom's crazy-making poem. The question of time was so emotionally resonant for me because this is a problem of mine. Like, I'm really impatient. I don't like to sit still like a lot of us. And I know that somewhere in my future is going to be a lot of dead time at a hospital or a home or a nursing home. And I actually I actually think about this, like, maybe once every two or three days. Like, how am I going to do it? And then I read this page and thought, you just do it. Like, everyone's going to have a different conception of the time. You know, your parents are going to think you're never there. Right. And then you're going to think you've been there forever. And that's just how it's going to be. Let's talk very briefly as a one last point about that amazing middle section after her parents leave the apartment and go to the place. And Roz has to deal with the stuff in their home accumulated over the course of 60 years or whatever, however long they've been there. 
I thought this section was really great, and it probably that I hope at least the number one lesson I'm going to take out of this book is a lesson that, according to Ross Chast, I would not otherwise learn until a little later in life when I have actually had to deal with this. But I want to read quickly on page 122, where she talks about what effect this experience has had on her. It's no accident that most ads are pitched to people in their 20s and 30s. Not only are they so much cuter than their elders, but they are less likely to have gone through the transformative process of cleaning out their deceased parents' stuff. Once you go through that, you can never look at your stuff in the same way. You start to look at your stuff a little postmortemistically. <laughs> if you've lived more than two decades as an adult consumer, you probably have quite the accumulation, even if you're not a hoarder. An ergonomic garlic press and throw pillows and those stupid sunflower dessert plates and seven travel alarm clocks and nail clippers and a colander and a flat iron and three old laptops and barbells and a set of fucking bocce balls, etc., etc., etc. And what is this? A cuckoo clock? And so many clothes and hats and shoes. And then there's all the kids' old stuff. And don't forget the furniture and four cameras and ice skates. And whose tap shoes are those? And all the crap in the drawers. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I'm not saying I never buy stuff, because I absolutely do but maybe I'm less naive about the joys of accumulation. Like if I take one lesson out of this book, other than get my mom long-term care insurance ASAP, it's this. Learn this lesson now before I have to learn it later. Yeah, and I do think that the World War II generation hoarders are a breed unto themselves. You know, like I, I know so. one or two of them and been to their houses and they do have cans of lids. She's like, why is there a can? They just a, have crappier stuff on They don't have more stuff. We no, have they have as much way stuff. more stuff. No, no, no. If you've ever been to like a true World War II generation hoarder's house, it's just unbelievable. Like, but will throw... we be like this when we're 80? But no. it will just be like nicer stuff. It depends stuff. how many times we've Ikea. had to move. No, because we've been born in the age of the sort of dispensable, you know, throw it away, get a new one, throw it away, get a new one. Yeah. And they were born into the age of like, there ain't no damn new one. Keep it all because there's never going to be anything again, you know? So it is a slightly different psychology, but that is extremely useful advice. You should throw away everything yes. now. Yes. Now. Also, her parents have this closet that is just the repository for all the old stuff and it was incredible to me that there would be a New York apartment that would have a space in it that could be essentially like you know blockaded off because right. <laughs> it was so full of things nobody wanted because one thinks of space as being at such a premium but one answer is just to put everything in that place and then when it's getting cleaned out, you can just throw it all away without going through it at all. As Roz Chess does. As she just tells the landlord, she takes a few things she wants and she tells the landlord, I don't care what you do with the rest of this shit. She just gives him some money and says, make it go away. So I know you said that was the last thing, but just two little tiny last things. <laughs> One, did you think that she was making her own crazy closet when she put her parents' ashes in the closet? Was that a way of like, was that an homage? Oh, no. <laughs> That was the way you call your mom every day, Hannah. That was like, I'm going to have some daily contact with them where I'm thinking yes. about them in this relatively friendly space and they're still a part of my life. I actually thought it was very sweet. It was very sweet. And then those pictures, those sketches of her mom on her deathbed really slayed me. Mm -hmm. They actually made me jealous because I thought, you know, that horrible feeling of just sitting there staring at a deceased person who was your mother, you know, she draws her from different angles. She looks alternately sort of miserable, agonized, and at peace. It's an incredible several pages, and it was a really wise decision to include every single sketch, I think. Yeah. Um, it's a totally different feel and quality than the vibrant rest of the book. I completely agree, but I hope my children are not sketching me when I am dying. <laughs> I like, Hannah, that you look at it as well. 
I'll be really bored while I'm sitting there with my dying parents, <laughs> so but I should I learn how to draw. If only I had talent in this particular way. You should take a like life a drawing class, crappy Nana. caretaker. That's a good idea. <laughs> you don't even have to take the class. Just, you know, yeah. save your energy and do it then. I know. You'll finally have a model. You can arrange to tutoring for yourself while you're sitting there. I also really like that choice for a conclusion, partially because one of the knocks on Ra's chest among other cartoonists, I think also, is that she only has one style and can only do one thing. Mm -hmm. And it is a useful reminder that pretty much every cartoonist in the world, even if you think that they can't draw, can draw a million times better than you. They've just made a stylistic choice to draw the way that they're drawing and never forget it. Love that point. So I want to start for this audiobook club. I want us to add a recommendation here at the end for a book that this book reminded you of or that it brought to mind or you think that listeners might enjoy reading if this was something they liked or if they didn't like it that they could read in place of this. Hannah, how about you? The book that immediately came to mind for me while I was reading this was Christopher Hitchens' Mortality. It's about his own death, not the death of his parents. But, you know, he's another one who kind of refuses solace and is looking at death with eyes wide open and doesn't spare you any of the gruesome details. So I think it's an amazing book, but it might strike some as uncomfortable. And, you know, the non-allowing of comforts might make you feel like there's no comfort in death. But mm -hmm. I liked it. Emily. I was thinking about our colleague Megan O'Rourke's book about her mother's death, The Long Goodbye, which is about a closer, warmer mother-daughter relationship and I think has more kind of comfort in it. And then if there is anyone That was my there, second and... choice. <laughs> it was. <laughs> really good. There it is on my I'm pad. I'm so glad. Yeah. I was also going to say if anyone out there in audiobook club world has not read Fun Home by Alison Bechdel, you should go run to the bookstore if you liked this book. And Are You My Mother also about uh, a close mother-daughter relationship. Yeah, I like that one less, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, my recommendation is um, a previous extremely good cartoon memoir about two elderly parents and their decline and death. It's called Special Exits. It's by Joyce Farmer, who is a much less well-known cartoonist than Ross Chast. She is not in The New Yorker all the time, but it's about her parents, Lars and Rachel, and their crazy cluttered-up apartment and everything that happens there. It's less funny than this one. It is more difficult than this one, I think, but it is very heartfelt, and Joyce Farmer did it first. I don't think Roz Chast copied her or anything, but Joyce Farmer did it first, and she'll never, ever be at the top of the New York Times graphic books bestseller list like Roz Chast, so you should buy her book, too. All right. So thank you very much, Emily and Hannah, for joining me for this conversation. It was nice having you guys here. It was fun. Thank you. Our pleasure. A program note. Our next book in the audiobook club will be Bad Feminist, the collection of essays by Roxane Gay that touches on gender, race, and ladies who love Chris Brown so much that they are willing to let him beat them. Please check it out. Read it. Join us back here on September 5th for our discussion on that book. We'll see you then. 